Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Rick Thomas here. Thank you so much for joining me for this Life Over Coffee seminar where we have conversations for transformation. Our mission statement is that we exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversation for transformation. And I trust that what we We'll talk about for the next few moments. We'll spark that conversation that will lead to many transformative moments between you and your friends. The title of this webinar is The Skill of Asking Insightful Questions. And the big idea is how to ask the right questions to help a person understand themselves while leading them to a better place in their situations and relationships. Who is this webinar for? Well, is for every Christian as we engage one another, not just in a biblical counseling context, but in every context, because all Christians are disciple makers as we want to love our Lord in obedience by going and making disciples. And therefore, as, as you make disciples, one of the most important things that you will ever do is learn how to ask the proper questions so that you can lead people into a better relationship with Jesus Christ. Whether that person is you, that you're talking to is your spouse, a child, or a child talking to a parent, friend to friend within the church, or even in evangelism context. So I trust over the next few moments that what I, what I have to share with you will be hugely beneficial, be practical, give you insight and instruction as you go about the business of making disciples. When the Lord asked Adam where he was in the Garden of Eden, this was right after the fall. The Lord did not ask Adam that question to find out where he was. God is omniscient, meaning that he knows all things. There is nothing new to the Lord. He will never discover anything, for he knows all things. Thus, he is asking a question here. Well, he already knows the answer. And so thus, we have to ask the question, why is God asking this question? Is it to find out new information? No. Uh, this was a discovery question for Adam to help Adam to work through the mess that he found himself in. And what you're going to find in most cases, I would say the majority of all situations when you're asking questions, yeah, there are some general data points that you don't know. Where did you come from? How old are you? Where was the last job or the last three jobs that you had? There are all sorts of those types of questions that we cannot possibly know. But when it comes to leading someone, I'm talking about addressing their heart motivations, what is going on in their heart, and how you would like to lead them as they begin to change internally. Those questions we pretty much already have the answers to, and therefore we're asking not necessarily to gain insight, but to help them to gain insight. And so when the Lord asked Adam where he was, it was not to find out where Adam was but it was to help Adam to find out where Adam was. When you talk about four or talk about question asking gifts, there are actually four of them, and I want to walk through them over the next couple of minutes because it's imperative that we understand that these gifts are from the Spirit, and we need to possess them, though we understand that all people do not possess them equally. 
Everybody has different capacities, but we all can self-assess. We can have other people speak into our lives to help us to self-assess so that we have self-awareness, knowing what our limitations are, knowing spaces that we can grow into. Having a healthy understanding of who we are is essential. Sometimes we can think that we are what we are not, or maybe uh, we're self-disqualifying when we actually have greater gifts than what we think that we have, and we can mature in them. And when it comes to the skill, the art, the insight of asking good questions, there are at least four gifts that we all possess to varying degrees. Now, you can add to this list, but these four are essential. The first one that you see on the screen here is a pneumatic gift. What do I mean by pneumatic? I'm talking about the pneumatos. I'm talking about walking in the Spirit. Pneumatology is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the teaching of the Holy Spirit, and asking good questions is a pneumatic gift for the Christian because God has made us alive in Christ. As we read in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dark. We were alienated from God. We had the Holy Spirit was not in us. We had no light in us, but now we are quickened or made alive, and the Spirit of God dwells in us. Now, that is a practical reality, meaning that the Spirit of God illuminates our minds. He helps us to see in the dark. He helps us to see what is not necessarily perceptive. The things of the Spirit of God are spiritually discerned. This is why the unregenerate person cannot have that depth or breadth of insight. Of course, they can see things and they can know things because they are made in the image of God. But there is a special gifting to the Christian, and that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He illuminates our minds. That is not a passive activity as though we have to do nothing. I don't have to read my Bible, memorize my Bible. I don't have to study anthropology, study humanity. I don't have to ask God for anything. No, those things are not true. We do the work, and what the Spirit illuminates is what is present in us. Therefore, as we hide God's Word in our hearts and memorize it, as we mature in the work of discipleship, the Spirit of God has something to work with. It is a cooperative effort. He is the primary game changer. He is the primary causal agent. He is the one that brings ultimate change, and he is the one that empowers us. But yet we are relational beings, and it is our responsibility to cooperate with him, not take a passive role as though we do not have to do anything. We do not uh, we do not we do not uh, we're not beholding to the mantra of let go and let God. No, we cooperate with him as secondary causal agents. And as we do that, proportionately, the spirit of God illuminates our minds and help us to see in greater insight. For question-asking gifts, there's also a discerning gift, meaning that we have to discern the, the folks that we are working with which means understanding their past, present, and future, asking the right questions, getting into their shaping influences, which I will talk about in a few moments. Also having an eschatological perspective on them. We can see in the future. As you talk to someone, you can 
Tell them with reasonable certainty that if you continue to do what you're going to do, this is how it's going to roll out for you. Whether that is negative or positive, it could be either way. But God gives us discernment. The Spirit of God illuminates our mind, give, giving us discernment to be able to speak into a person's life as we grow in understanding them through the questions that we ask them. And then it is a courageous gift. Now, what this means is sometimes you have to say challenging things to those you love. And it's important, as you see this statement on the screen, saying challenging things to those you love, challenging things to those you love. The implication here is that we love them, that we have a divine affection for them. We love them minimally as made in the image of God, the Imago Dei, that God has created them in his image. Therefore, there is worth there, and that worth is because of the designer, because of God Almighty, and because they are image bearers. We should minimally have a modicum of affection even for our enemies, Therefore, that will govern the challenging things that we say to them. It is never right to be harsh to anyone or to be unkind. Now, we can say difficult things and we can disagree with them in the most stern ways, but that should not negate or soften our affection for them minimally, again, as divine image makers. But one of the, uh, made in the image of God, but one of the things that I've noticed with many people who do the work of discipleship, a delay Christian, or even a formalized biblical counselor, is two things can happen, actually. One, the courageous gift without compassion, and therefore they are harsh toward the people that they're speaking toward or speaking to. And then the other, on the other end of the spectrum, is the person is afraid. They do not want to say the challenging thing. They struggle with fear of man, usually, meaning they're craving for approval. They don't want to lose the, the relationship. They know they should say something, but as we say, they chicken out. Biblically speaking, we're talking about fear of man. If you're going to lead somebody, if you're going to help them, if you're going to do the work of discipleship, then you need a courageous gift. And then finally, it's a leadership gift. You lead them. More than likely, you're leading them to where they do not want to go, and that happens often. And so as you look at the four question-asking gifts, you can see how essential all of them are. I think it would be a good exercise for you to add to my list here. I have the pneumatic gift, the discerning gift, a courageous gift, and a leadership gift. Now, to ask well, to ask excellent questions, is to know the person that you're talking to. And I'm going to do a deeper dive into this in just a moment. But first, let's stop by this text here in John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. This is John commentating on a scene that happened some 40 years earlier. John was writing the Gospel of John, and he was recounting this story, this conversation that Jesus was having with the Pharisees. Part of that conversation, it begins in verse 18, but part of it in 24 and 25 says this, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, to the Pharisees he's talking about, because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew psychology, the study of the soul. Jesus was a student of the soul. 
He understood people. He could discern people. He had the nomadic gift. He had the discerning gift. He had the courageous gift and the leadership gift. He was not afraid, not unkind, but never afraid to speak in a person's life with authority and clarity because he understood a person's soul. Now, one of the things that we don't want to do here is to fall prey to a misunderstanding of the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union means that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. He did not operate on earth as 98% man and 2% God as though he was some kind of superhuman. That actually would annihilate the gospel. He was a human, 100% sacrifice. As we read in Philippians 2, that he set aside and took on the form of a servant. He became a man. Some people will say, well, I just don't know what Jesus knew. I, I did not have that kind of insight. Well, certainly because of our fallenness, we will not rise to the height of Jesus' humanity because he was sinless. But we need to be careful that we do not disqualify or discount ourselves as though we cannot mature in understanding humanity. That's why I trust that this webinar here, plus I have another one called Human Motivation and Shaping Influences, which I would encourage you to watch as a tandem because it will help you. It will give you insight. We too, as human beings, can have extraordinary insight because of the illuminating power of the Spirit of God and the discernment that He gives us and the courage that we model and the leadership that we emulate for those that we're guiding along through the processes of discipleship. We can know what is in man. We can understand psychology, the word concerning the soul. We have God's word, and of course we are soul creatures, therefore we can we have the word to bring to bear on our souls, giving us extraordinary insight into humanity. Now, as far as what in us is, I want to talk a few moments about what is inside our psyche, what is inside our souls. Well, one of those things that makes us who we are, that gives us discernment into humanity, including ourselves, of course, is our shaping influences. Now, I want to walk uh, just for a few minutes through some of the shaping influences. Perhaps you can think of yourself as you go through this list of shaping influences. It will help you to understand more clearly who you are, where you came from, why you do what you do, why you think what you, uh, how you think. Some of your presuppositions, the filters, the lenses that you use to interpret life, etc., Everybody has shaping influences, and it is a conglomeration of them, a mixture of them assimilated into the uniqueness of the individual who is sitting in front of you. All of these shaping influences apply to all of us. Now, the first one, of course, is we are made in God's image. That separates us from the animal kingdom. It separates us in ways that I've been talking about already, like the Spirit of God illuminating us, abiding in us, which he does not uh, to any animal, of course. 
And so we are made in God's image, as James talked about in 3, 9, and 10 in the King James Bible, that we're made in the similitude of God or made in God's image. Now, part of what that means is, is that we have communicable attributes, meaning there are things that God has communicated or given to us. There are incommunicable attributes like omnipotence. He did not give that to us. All two-year-olds need to hear that. You are not omnipotent. There are boundaries in your lives. There are parameters. You need to live under authority, etc. And that is the privilege of all parenting to teach little kids that they are not omnipotent. We're also not om- omniscient. That is not a communicable attribute. This is what all 19-year-olds need to know, as I needed to know as a 19-year-old. I thought I was omniscient. I knew all things as a 19-year-old. I have, I have learned after all these years of living that that is simply not true. Those are incommunicable attributes. However, there are communicable attributes like love. We have the capacity to love, mercy, justice. We understand justice, and we want to see justice acted out. Community, for example, God is a community, and there's a desire within us to be communicable, it is, uh, to be com- communal, rather. It is not good for man to be alone, as we read in Genesis 2.18. We cannot image God properly without community. And so made in the image of God means something. I've given you a short list, but obviously it means a lot more. Shaping influences, total depravity, that would be a huge one. Obviously, we are totally depraved. And what that means is that we're broken through and through. There is not one ounce, there's not one speck of ourselves that is unaffected by depravity. It doesn't mean that we have sinned all that we possibly could. Uh, No, by the grace of God, by the staying power of the Spirit, by His mercy, by common grace, we're not sinning as much as we could, but we have the capacity to sin a whole lot more because we're totally broken through and through. Now, what you'll find with all people is that we're totally depraved, but we are uniquely fallen, meaning no people, no two people are exactly alike. Those of you who have more than one child, you know that, as the two children are totally depraved, but they are uniquely different. They have proclivities that aren't the same from child to child. And it's important to understand that so that uh, we don't map our experience over other people, thinking, well, why do you do that? Why do you have that proclivity? Why do you have that that leaning? Why do you have that desire? I don't have that desire. You shouldn't either. Well, they're uniquely fallen. We don't know how each child is going to come into the world as far as their unique fallenness. That's why they make decisions. One sibling will make decisions that are different from the other. Shaping influences, also community. We are born in unique communities, which have shape over us, as you can imagine. There are also unknown shaping influences. There are things that we're still discovering about our fearfully and wonderfully made bodies and souls. And so there are things that we just can't know. And I think that's important, especially in the world of science, that when the stop sign is erected at the end of the road, we need to stop and go no farther because we just don't know. There are some things that we do not know, and we need to understand that. There's an element of mystery here, and at some point, you will have to become comfortable with mystery because you cannot know a person entirely or what makes them up or why they do what they do. 
There are genetic influences, of course. Uh, we can use height uh, as an illustration of this. Uh, I will not uh, play on any NBA basketball team for obvious reasons. Genetically, I am not uh, shaped that way. I'm genetically shaped in other ways. And, of course, there's a long list of subcategories that could go under genetic, but you get the idea that we're different genetically. In utero, meaning in woman, uh, as our mothers carried us in their wombs, uh, that is a shaping influence. We know some truly adverse uh, outcomes of this with a crack addict, for example, carrying a child. Uh, but just a normal pregnancy, uh, there are in utero shaping influences in woman as we're being carried by our mothers. And then there is family shaping influences. The milieu, I mean simply the environments in which we live, cultural generations. My generation is farther in the rearview mirror than it used to be, and it's, it's getting farther as each day goes by. I am much different from this current generation that we're living in. We have the millennials and the Gen X, the Gen Z, etc. And as we move from generation to generation, of course, you could go back way past my generation. Uh, we have the greatest generation, as we call the World War II uh, generation. And as you compare generations across millennia, you see how they are different, not just the generations that we come from, but working through this list backwards, cultural, milieu, family, etc. All of these things make us uniquely who we are. The academy, our academic uh, process, uh, education environments that we have been in, politics, from country to country, from community to community, uh, from state to state here in America and, of course, in other regions and provinces around the world, uh, politics matter. In Alberta, Canada, the politics is, are much different than Quebec at, or British Columbia, for example, uh, where I live currently in South Carolina versus, let's say, California. That makes a big difference the freedoms or the lack thereof uh, in these places we live. Religion is a shaping influence for all people. I mean, even the devil, he believes in God, uh, but yet he resists God. Uh, everybody has a God awareness inside of them, but not just a God awareness. We, Many of us have been shaped maybe in profound ways, um, excessive ways, by religion, by being in uh, straight-up religious environments, whether it's Catholic or Mormon or Protestant, Muslim, etc. These are shaping influences, and even within the Protestant movement, all the denominations that we have, uh, stripe upon stripe. There are many stripes, and all of that uh, makes up shaping influences. And then finally on this list, now again, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just a few things of about 12 altogether, but the last one here is free will. The choices that we make. I made some poor choices in my life, and I have made some outstanding ones like Christ, would you save me? That was a fantastic choice that I made, and of course, that is a huge shaping influence, and it has shaped my life for multiple decades now. 
I've also made some horrible choices too, but all of that mixed together, the choices that I've made, good and bad, create shaping influences. And of course, I'm talking about what is in us. And so you can look at the list. Again, a good exercise would be to add to this list, and it will help you when it comes to asking questions because the temptation could be for some is to think that, well, you should do it the way that I do it. You could hear parents saying this. Uh, my dad would say, why do you listen to that music? Well, I'm different from you. Uh, he had a hard time understanding that, but I can relate to him very well today as I listen to some of the music that our children listen to, and I'm just not interested, uh, but they are different from me, and we want to be careful that we don't map our experiences over other people. So we're talking about what is in us, shaping influences is a big one, and of course it creates a manner of life. It makes us who we are. And so as you go through that list on the previous slide, that in itself will create a lot of questions that you can ask someone to help understand what is in them, thus giving you the ability to guide them to a better place, assuming that that is your goal. Now, also, there are universal assumptions that you can make about all people, and I want to illustrate that through this animation I call it 12 universal assumptions that you can make about anyone. And so as we look at this graphic, we have a gentleman here. We'll call him Biff, and Biff has a unique life. Now, his life is different from everyone else. So when I say that there are universal assumptions you can make about everyone, I am saying that everyone on the planet is the same, virtually the same. Eight billion people, we're all the same, but I'm not talking about their unique life, their unique narrative, the stories that they live, the above-ground life that you, are that you are observing. Obviously, everybody above ground is different from the next person. As I was talking about earlier, with any two siblings, they are not alike. But where we disciple people is not primarily above ground, though that we do practice behavioral modification or, as Jesus said, amputation in Matthew 5. The real discipleship happens in the heart. And as you get underneath the surface of a person's life, as you see by this dotted line, what you're going to find is that people are maybe eerily the same that we're all the same. And that's why you can make universal assumptions about any human on the planet. Let me walk through these 12 assumptions, and you will find that you struggle with these things to varying degrees, just like I do, depending on your maturity, depending on if you're a Christian or not, how long you've been walking with the Lord, how you have mortified the deeds of the body, etc. Some will struggle more Others will struggle less, but these are temptations for all of us, and one of those is self-reliance. The desire to rely on ourselves. A synonym for this is unbelief, lack of faith, meaning that I'm going to trust me and not trust God. That is exactly what Adam was doing in the Garden of Eden when he chose to unbelieve God. Self-reliance is a temptation, taking matters in our own hands rather than relying on the Lord. Control is a big idol in our lives. We want control of our world. Now, you can test this, uh, though I hope it doesn't happen to you. But you can test this by uh, your life unraveling where you 
aren't able to control your world as much as you like to, and you will find out how much uh, control means to you. Comfort, we all love comfort to varying degrees, We, as in we do not want to be discomforted. We all struggle with fear and shame, as you see here on the screen. Shame is that internal awkwardness of the soul, just not quite comfortable in our own skin. These, uh, these five idols that you see on the screen actually are the five idols that you see uh, cropping up in Adam's life immediately after he chose to unbelieve. And, of course, guilt is another one. This is why what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, you will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will not carry guilt, shame, fear. We will not seek ungodly comfort or care to control our lives, and self-reliance will be gone because we will be living in glorified unfallen, bod uh, un unfallen bodies, and that will be fantastic. So these are universal assumptions you can make about anyone, self-reliance, control, comfort, fear, shame, guilt, and then, of course, faith and unfaith. That is our tension. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And we find that double-mindedness happening in our lives all along, depending on what's going on in our lives. We're fully trusting the Lord, and then there will be moments where we will be weak in our faith. I am not talking about salvation at this point. I trust that you are saved, that God has regenerated you, you have been born again, and so I'm not talking in a salvific sense as though you can lose your salvation, for you cannot, but I'm talking about in a sanctification sense. After we are born again, we can struggle in our sanctification with fully trusting God, and so there's this ongoing battle in our souls between faith and unfaith, and some of these other idols, the six that are stacked up here over the heart, these are some of the things that's creating that tug of war, that war within our souls, self-reliance, control, comfort, fear, shame, and guilt. Now, there are other universal assumptions as well. I'll just quickly go through those. You can see them on the right of the screen. I have five listed here. These are all common to all of us. We struggle with self-righteousness as we elevate ourselves above certain people or certain people groups or certain demographics like uh, political uh, demographics uh, would be one. We are better than them. And of course, they think they are better than us. Self-righteousness is an ongoing battle in our souls. Sexuality, I believe that is obvious. Anger is one of the easily, most easily accessible sins that we commit as we use anger to manipulate people to accomplish whatever it is we're trying to accomplish, even if it's, we just want them to be quiet. We use anger as a manipulative tactic, and we all struggle with anger. Sometimes the anger is not as volatile. Sometimes it is internalized bitterness and grumbling and complaining and disappointment. Ongoing, uninterrupted disappointment is a manifestation of anger. Fear of others, fear of man, the Bible would say in Proverbs 29, 25, and of course suffering. None of us like to suffer. We want to escape suffering, and this is where suffering and the comfort idol uh, can be began to collide with each other. And so what you see on the screen here are assumptions, and as you listen to a person talk, uh, you be 
can begin filtering what they're saying through this slide that you have here, and maybe some of these will pop up, and then that will give you insightful questions to lead them as you begin to identify how, well, one, they're just like you, but then two, they uniquely iterate in a way maybe unlike you, even though you struggle with these issues, but maybe not to the degree of the person that you are discipling. And so what is in us? Again, God has given us insight through the elimination of the Spirit of God to be similar to Jesus. He knew what was in man and The psychology book, God's Word, gives us extraordinary insight to look inside of people, and we can make some assumptions that can be pretty close to what's going on. Of course, the questions that we ask will help us to land the plane over the target eventually. Another thing that is in us is this tension between needs and desires. We all have needs, we all have desires, and these are things that you want to try to extrapolate out of a person as you're talking to them. Let's take a look at that uh, with this slide here. This is the need versus desire uh, graphic, and it's really helpful because what happens in too many situations is that you will find a person that will have a desire, let's say a good desire, because that's really what can trip us up. I think if we had a sinful desire as a Christian, the Spirit of God would illuminate our minds in such a way that we would know, you know, you don't need that. That is an evil desire. Why are you desiring that thing? But then again, there are good desires that we have, and sometimes they they backdoor us, and we don't recognize how that desire is now dominating us, and it is manipulating us to become sinful when those desires are not meant. And so a desire would say something like, I would like for you to fill in the blank whatever that is. And so let's say that you want your spouse to be a better person. That's somewhat vague, but let's say you want your spouse to be a better person, whatever that may be, however that may be. That's not a bad desire. That's a good desire. But what happens is is that we turn that desire into a need. And at that transition point, at that pivot point, We don't even realize it when it happens, but it happens. And now that desire has morphed. It has metastasized, and it sounds different in a statement. Rather than saying, I would like for you to be a better spouse, now I need for you to be a better spouse in whatever way that you intend for them to be a better spouse, for example. And once that happens, we create an expectation That expectation says, I expect you to do this for me, and of course, that's never going to happen the way that you expect it, and you never realize that, well, you know, I had a desire, and a desire says that I could take it or leave it, but I'm not going to be managed by it if you're not going to do it, but we don't realize how it has transitioned and metastasized, and now it is a need, and we don't realize how we have set up an expectation, and so it's going to be like a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is not going to go well from this point, and what will happen with the individual who has a metastasized desire transformed into a need, they're going to say, you should do this for me. And now we're making mandates, we're making demands, and we will not have it any other way because this is way beyond a desire. This is a need that I have in my life, and of course that is a setup for 
disappointment. You did not do what I asked. And so the final thing that we have on the list here, because you didn't, I will punish you. And in so many relational conflicts, you will see this exactly going on. And what you have to do is you have to back them up and help them to realize that I understand what you're wanting. I'm not even arguing with you that what you want is a bad thing. It's not. What you want is a good thing. But what you want has turned into an idol. It is an idol that you will not be satisfied until it is met and it's not being met and everything starts devolving in the relationship. And so the skill of asking insightful questions is understanding this transitional dynamic between desires and needs. There's only very few needs that we have in our life. Most everything on our list, they are desires. And so you want to ask those questions of yourself. Is this a desire or a need in this individual's life? And if it's a desire that they have turned into a need, then you're going to see this downward regression. And, of course, it will explain why there's so much conflict. And your goal will be to help to lead them out of the mess that they created because they probably won't have enough self-awareness uh, to realize what they've done. They've taken a desire and they have retranslated it into a need. Most question asking is not because you do not know the answer. I was talking about this earlier with God asking Adam, where are you? You're asking questions to lead them to the truth. And so as you think about the 12 universal assumptions that you can make about all people, this pivoting from desires to need, as you think about all the shaping influences, you can get a pretty good bead on what is going on inside an individual, and then you're asking questions in order to help them to see. And this is key, because what you don't want to do, if you can get away with it, you don't want to tell them what the problem is. An excellent teaching tip, as you know, is permitting people to discover the truth, not being told the truth. It is the problem with the calculator. If the calculator gives us the answers, then there's no work involved. There's no aha moment. There is no discovery. There's no sweat of the brow of trying to figure it out. But when someone does the work, when they figure it out, they come to that inevitable place of, aha, I get it now. I've discovered it. Well, then they're not going to forget it. But if we're just handing out truth to people, then we're creating a dependency on them, depending on us, is similar to like Google. Rather than doing the research, I don't have to remember anything. All I have to do is Google it. I have an assistant in my pocket. All I have to do is ask my assistant. I will get the answer. No sweat. And, of course, that is the problem. There is no sweat. And therefore, it never goes deep into our psyche. We never experience transformation because we live superficial, on top of the surface, lives, never diving deep, never working out anything, not working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so we want to be careful that we're not God's answer men and women, but we are God's insightful question askers that are leading people to a place to where they can discover the truth for themselves. Now, there will be times when you have no choice. 
but just to tell them because they're not getting it. They're really not getting it no matter uh, how many questions you ask them, how well you lead them. They are just not connecting the dots, but those are the exceptions rather than the rule. So I want to walk through three sequential steps when it comes to question asking. Number one, response questions. You want to find out where you are or find out where they are. Number two, motive questions. You want to enter their psyche. Psyche means soul. Now, these are sequential steps. And so what are you doing? Find out where they are. What is the motivation of your heart? What's going on inside you that's motivating you to do what you're doing? And then number three, the change question. I want to lead you to a better place. Let's take the response question. Never assume you know what they mean. Probably don't. And so when they tell you whatever's going on in their life, you're going to ask to have to ask some additional questions because you can't know all those shaping influences, for example, that I went over earlier. You can't know clearly at this point the 12 universal assumptions. You don't have full context of their lives. Let me illustrate it this way. If I could, I'm a little bit hesitant to use this illustration. As you see on the screen, you have a big green circle. It's as big as I could possibly make it to keep it proportional within the screen. But this big circle rec rep represents omniscience, and that's why I'm hesitant to use this, because there's no limits. There is no circle for omniscience. God knows all things. But for sake of illustration, I'm using an anthropomorphic expression, sort of, in order to illustrate this point. And then you see this little dot in the 7 o'clock position there. I'll draw an arrow over to it so you don't miss it. Well, this is the idea. What we know and what God knows are worlds apart. And again, this, this illustration does not even come close to what omniscience is and what being finite is. But it gives you the idea. Now, you can also translate this to the person that you're talking to. What they know and what you know, they're not compatible at this point. They're not comparable. Proportionally, they are different, and we have to understand that. That's why uh, we want to ask good questions so that that little dot in the 7 o'clock position <laughs> grows, and we have somewhat the same awareness as they do without the lived experience, of course, but on an intellectual level, we pretty much have an idea. We have enough of an idea to be able to lead them, but not in the beginning. And so we want to understand that. And so we are saying, I do not understand. And that's why we're asking response questions like, find out where they are. For example, what's going on? What led to this? How did you respond? These are synonymous questions. It's just different ways of asking it would probably be a good exercise for you to sit down and work through some other type questions just to think through this process so that when you're sitting in front of someone, you will be able to think about response questions, what they have been, how they've been responding, what they have been doing, the behaviors in their lives, what they have been thinking. You're coming at them as the little dot inside the big green circle you're simply saying, humbly saying, I do not understand. And so you're trying to find out. 
So one of the keys to that is what I call two-level listening. Two-level listening is the above-ground, below-ground phenomenon, meaning we have to listen at two levels. Above ground, as Jesus would say in Luke 6, 45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so as you listen to people on one level, you're going to hear a lot of drama. You're going to hear a lot of narrative. You're going to hear a lot of past of what's, what's been going on, what's been happening, what's the drama in their lives, the relationships, the interactions. They're going to tell you all about it. And I'm just calling that drama. It doesn't have to be dramatic, but it will be an experience that they will be sharing with you, and all of that is above ground. In some cases, it may be venting, and you'll have that a lot, especially in the biblical counseling world where people are are venting, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but quite simply, that's what many people are doing, and that's fine, at least in the initial stages of your interaction with them. And then underneath the ground, you'll have their condition without Christ's help, or you may say with Christ's help. But in this illustration, I'm talking about without Christ's help, and that's why we have drama and venting above the ground. If it is dramatic and they are venting, then you know they are operating without the help of Christ. Therefore, two-level listening at the level of the heart underneath the surface of their lives, you're trying to identify some of the idolatry, some of the war within because there will be things that are happening inside their heart because that is what creates the drama in their lives, the venting that they are doing. That's why it's essential that you listen at two levels. What is actually going on as far as what's coming out of their mouth as they're describing the story, but then you want to see what's actually going on as you're trying to discern the motivations of the heart. So here's a short list of some of the things that you could think about as they're talking to you. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of things that could be happening in a person's heart. I'm not saying that all of them are happening at the same time. You could add to the list, and what you have to do is to identify, what am I really hearing from this person? Is that anger? Is that regret? There's fear. There's some shame. Is that bitter? Here's a person trying to control. Here's a person looking for comfort and can't find it. Here's guilt talking. There is self-righteousness talking. And then at the bottom of the heart, you see in all caps the word unbelief. Ultimately, that is the biggest culprit. Nothing is below that. We're either relying on God or relying on ourselves. Again, a synonym for self-reliance is unbelief. And so it will be at the very bottom, always operative in our hearts when uh, there is sinful, dramatic, venting communication going above ground. James would call this the war within. And so what you want to do is to identify the war that is inside this individual that leads to the drama or the venting in their life. The big idea here is two-level listening, listening to what they're telling you, but then assigning biblical typology, labels, categories, heart conditions, so that you can get to the root of what is happening, and as you get to the root, then you can lead them to rooting it out, which ultimately will change what's going on above the ground, above the surface of their lives in their real-world relationships. Four question-asking gifts. I'll go back to that screen again uh, just to see it, as you can probably, probably perceive at this point, 
Uh, you, we need this. We need a pneumatic gift, a discerning gift, a courageous gift, a leadership gift. These are absolutely essential as we're asking questions. Now, we've talked about the response questions. Let's talk about the motivations of the heart, the motive questions. I want to enter your psyche. Again, the word psyche means soul. So you, you wanted to go below the surface of the ground or the below the surface of their hearts and get into their souls. It's beyond the behavior. It's beyond the words. You're getting more into the attitude, more into the motivations. After you find out where the individual is coming from, you want to enter their soul, and that is the big idea with the sequence number two, the motive question. Now, I think it would be important to think about a, I'm calling it a soul education. What is our soul? We are a dichotomy, body and soul. And so body and soul are basket words. Body, a basket word that has all the body parts. And I think you can understand that readily. Eyes and hair and lungs and toenails and skin and body parts. And it all fits within that big basket of body. And then we are a soul. Soul is a container as well. And inside the soul are many parts. Now, you see a partial list here on the screen. For those who are listening to the audio, I'll go through this list. But these are the things that uh, some of the parts that go inside our soul. And the importance of understanding this is because uh, we want to be able to pivot when necessary to focus on the right part. There is spirit and conscience, desires, motives. You'll see all of these in the New Testament. Thoughts, strengths, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mind, will, emotions, cravings, intentions. God can think about or work through the intentions of the heart. And then the last one, of course, is heart. Now, this is a non-exhaustive list, but I just want to expand our thinking, recognizing that the soul has many parts, like the body has many parts. And so when you're asking insightful, skilled questions, you want to focus on the right thing. It could be that their conscience is a little hard or a little soft. Maybe a person who has had a religious shaping influence that was legalistic, authoritarian, and they have a long list of sins that aren't sins, like women wearing pants or uh, whether alcohol is proper to drink or not or what Bible you uh, study, etc. There can be a long list of things that people divide over. And if you're an authoritarian, legalistic, religious culture, uh, you could have it trained in you, ingrained in you, that there are things that are sins when in reality the Bible gives us purposeful freedom, but your conscience can be super sensitive. And so when you think about that person, you want to focus on the conscience in part. That would be some of what you would focus on. So it's important to have a good understanding of the soul so that you can help them to untangle, to unwind, to unlearn whatever it is so that they can be free in Christ. That's why one of the most insightful questions that you can ask someone, assuming they have the context and they know what you mean by the question, how is your soul today? That is an excellent question. This, by the way, is the question that I ask my wife more than any other. 
And because she has a soul education, she understands the complexity of the soul and the different soul parts. And so it's really like a blank check, similar to the way what your doctor might ask, how are you doing today? He's asking you a generic, ambiguous, general, blank question because he knows you've got enough sense to point out exactly what's going on with your body. And you can choose whatever you want to choose as far as your body is concerned because you know how your body is doing. Same question. How is your soul today? And again, if they have context and understanding of the question, then that gives them the liberty to answer that question in any way that they want to, rather than me telling her how she's doing today. I can ask this broad, generalized, abstract question, and then she can give me an answer, and then we can go to work, uh, the work of discipleship. And so how is your soul today uh, is the number one question that I ask her uh, so that I can get a bead on how she's doing. And again, she tells me how she's doing according to whichever, if I can say it this way, soul part that she wants to focus on. And so you want to enter the soul. Some of the questions that you might ask, why did you come to that conclusion about the matter? What were you thinking about when you did that? What did you hope to gain by responding like that? Now, these are synonymous questions that you're asking uh, just to get the ball rolling, to help you to think through what soul question, motivation of the heart questions, what they look like. Here's a list. Again, it would be a good exercise for you to add to this list, maybe share these things with a friend where you can uh, think of other soul-type questions that will get to the heart of the matter. By the way, for those of you who are watching the video, as you look at the picture on the screen, this is not how it's supposed to be done. I use this picture intentionally because I know uh, many people have had this experience where the person who was asking the question was asking in a harsh, unkind way. And so the picture is an antithetical uh, to the questions that I am putting forth for you to ask. The picture is not how you're supposed to do it, and I wanted to uh, make sure that that was clear. It's not an interrogation. It's not something that should be a, a, a some kind of punishment or something to dread when two people are having a conversation. If it is, then the question asking is wrong. The question asker needs to address their heart motives before they start asking the question. And then the final, final one on the list here, what did you mean by what you said to them? These are all good and appropriate questions, and uh, I would encourage you to add to this list to help uh, flesh that out a little bit more. And so we have the re response question, what have you been doing? We have the motive question as you enter the soul, and then we have the change question, and you see those listed here in sequential order. And number three, the change question, I want to lead you to a better place. You ask them leading questions, hoping to lead them to where they need to go. The purpose of leading questions is, one, you want to lead them to stop, to think, to reflect. You're not giving them the answers, as I said before, but you're leading them to it. You want them to have that aha moment because they've done the work. They stopped. They thought. They reflected. They stumbled upon it. They figured it out. They'll never forget it. 
and you can lead them well, which is point number two here. You lead them to figure things out. Sometimes you lead them to indict themselves. Now, this is a person that needs to hear hard truth. Rather than telling them what they're doing wrong, you lead them with questions until they talk themselves into a box canyon. They run themselves into a trap. An illustration of this would be, let's say, that you're discipling someone and you're unsure if this person is born again. In fact, based on your interaction with them, you're thinking they are not Christian. They are not a born-again person. And so what you do is you give them things to do. Well, the Bible says don't be angry, and so you stop being angry. The Bible says you should love, so you should love this person. The Bible says you should be grateful, so you should become a person of gratitude. On and on and on, and you find after uh, two months, three months, that they just they have no juice. They have no ability. They have no empowerment. There is no grace. There's no Spirit of God. They just aren't doing those things. And then you can come back and say, well, you said you were a Christian, but you're not able to do Christian things. Now, I would not say it that way. I'm not recommending that. Just in this seminar, I'm giving an illustration. It's a tight illustration with no frills. Uh, obviously, you would communicate it with more compassion and more discernment. But for the sake of this seminar, uh, you would you could say something like, you're not doing any of these things after three months, and the data is clear. They have indicted themselves. Uh, they are the ones that have proved. You didn't have to tell them that they weren't born again. They are exhibiting to you that they're not born again. And so you ask them leading questions that lead them to a place of realization that maybe there is something wrong with me. Types of leading questions. What would have been a better response or what would have happened if you had responded differently? Three, how should you respond now? And then number four, what is your specific plan to respond differently in the future? You're leading them eschatologically. You're leading them into the future. Let's summarize the response question. What's going on? What led to this? Those are two response questions. The reason you want to find out what is happening the motive question, what were you thinking? What did you hope to gain? You want to get to know the real person, what's going on in the heart. And then the change question, how should you respond? What's your plan to change? I want to lead them to a better place. The skill of asking insightful questions. You are leading them, thus your questions should have a progressive purpose to them. The big idea in this webinar is how to ask the right questions to help a person understand themselves while leading them to a better place in their situations and relationships. And so there's two big parts to this big idea, asking the right questions. And of course, you're doing that to lead them to a better place. And so your questions become the method. And, of course, the process is to lead them. You want them to discover as much as they can possibly discover without feeding them and creating a dependency upon yourself. In addition to that, if they do discover the truth rather than being fed the truth, they probably won't forget it ever. Now, before I leave this webinar, if I may make an appeal, as you see on the screen, there are five things here that I would love for you to consider. One, that you would pray for our ministry, that God would continue to bless our ministry and help us to reach 
as many people as possible with the practical message of Jesus Christ. Also, if you would follow us on socials, whatever social media platform that you are a part of, whether that's Rumble or YouTube or Facebook or Instagram or X platform, whatever it may be, if you would follow us and then share our resources at lifeovercoffee.com. You can copy a URL. You can print the content as you go to the bottom of any article. You can print it off, but let others know and say, hey, here is an excellent article, a video, a podcast uh, that you can uh, take advantage of. For those of you who do the work of discipleship, let us work for you. Share our content And then we come alongside the person that you're helping in a supplemental way, whether it's in the church or a parachurch organization, within your family, friend to friend. Use our resources to help you accomplish what you want to accomplish in a person's life. And then finally, there are support and donation options. You can make a one-time donation or you can become a supporting member. Uh, For example, you can become a leader over coffee, which would allow you access to a lot more resources like daily video messages from me. We have regular leader over coffee meetings where we talk to individuals and do things as a group through Zoom communication. You also have a private forum that is more private than any of the uh, supporting forums on our site as a leader over coffee. And so there are benefits to becoming a supporter of our ministry. But the reason I'm asking the support and donate question is because we do need your help. As you know, you're watching this video, this webinar. The majority of people that will watch this will watch this freely. It takes hundreds of hours to put our resources together on a monthly basis, thousands of hours over the years, and hundreds of thousands of dollars. All of that is given. And so if you have the ability to give to our ministry, would you do that as a local church? Would you support our ministry as a local church, as a missional arm of what you're doing as we're reaching people around the world every single day, and your support as a local church, as an individual, as a business person? Underwriting our ministry would be hugely beneficial. We do need you, and if you are able to help to keep our resources free, would you consider that? Also, for some of you, I would encourage you to think about our Mastermind program. It is an all-online training program where any person around the world who has access to the Internet uh, would be able to go through our entire program without leaving your home. Uh, It's a wonderful program that many people have gone through, and they all testify the same, that it was a transformative experience. It is self-paced. There's information on our website at lifeovercoffee.com about becoming a mastermind student. The title of this webinar is The Skill of asking insightful questions. Thank you so much for participating. I am Rick Thomas. You can find me at my coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com. This is where we have conversations for transformation. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.